Positive heads out there. Thanks for tuning your beautiful brainwaves into another episode of the Positive Head Podcast, where we are firmly convinced that creating success and happiness is rooted in understanding the ultimate nature of reality and the fact that as human beings, we are all immensely powerful fractals of the one and only source consciousness, which creates and animates all things. Now, of course, understanding this powerful truth is one thing. Applying this incredibly empowering wisdom to everyday life? Well, that's another. Which is exactly why we provide you with a fresh serving of soul food for thought five days a week. To help constantly remind you of what matters most. You are it. And I'm your host, Brandon Beecham. I'm the one who will be here with you each and every Wednesday, interviewing a different consciousness changemaker that is also out there working tirelessly to help catalyze change and expand awareness all across Spaceship Earth. On the other four weekdays, you can hear me discussing topics such as my favorite thought-provoking quotes, reading and discussing wisdom from empowering books, playing clips from various inspirational spiritual teachers, sharing a bit of mysterious news, taking questions from the audience, and essentially digging into any other mind-expansive topics that will help keep your soul fed by tuning you into positive vibrations on a consistent basis. And you guys have heard me say that if I ever run ads on the show, it will only be with a company that I fully support because I believe their intention is to make a positive difference in the world. Well, I'm pleased to announce that day has arrived and that this episode of the Positive Head podcast is being brought to you thanks to the support of Gaia. If you're not familiar, Gaia is the go-to source for streaming consciousness content online, and you can sign up for your first month for only 99 cents at Gaia.com forward slash positive head. That's spelled G-A-I-A dot com forward slash positive head. Check it out. All right, all you positive heads, on this week's interview episode, I'm very excited to have Dean Radin here with me on the show. Not so dissimilar to my favorite magical character from the Mortal Kombat video game, also with the name Raiden. Dean is the chief scientist at the Institute of Noetic Sciences, which is dedicated to unlocking the scientific understanding of intuition, inspiration, and transformation. Hey there, Dean. Welcome to the show. Good to be here. Thanks. Is that the first time you've been compared to a uh, Raiden the video game character? Uh-uh. You know, I'm going to have to look that up because I'm not really a big fan of video games. And I didn't realize that there was a character named Raiden. There is. There is. He's the Thunder God. From This is a game that's been around for a really long time. And I played it a lot as a kid. And uh, he's a pretty cool character. He truly was my favorite character in this game. Out of like maybe, I don't know, there's been... A couple dozen over the years, but uh, so yeah, you'll have to look that one up. See your alter ego there, right? <laughs> cool, good. So uh, I like to open with the same question uh, and end with the same question, always with my guest. And uh, so I'll go ahead and uh, stay predictable for the listeners. You're in an elevator. You've got ten floors to answer. Uh, the guy next to you looks over, says, "What's your passion? What do you say?" That depends on what building we're in with the elevator uh, and where we're going and uh, how I uh, make a a rapid assessment as to who's asking the question. The reason 
I say that is because very calculated. <laughs> well, it's because uh, over over many years I've been asked that question a lot, and uh-huh. if I get the sense that the uh, the person is not really interested, they're just doing it to be polite. Uh-huh. And I'll say I'm a scientist, and that will predictably say, "Oh, what do you study?" And I say, "Well, I study psychophysiology." Mm-hmm. And if they ask what that is, I say, "Well, I study the the reaction of the human body to different kinds of stimuli." That usually mm-hmm. ends ends the the question, and the elevator door opens, and that's the end of it. <laughs> right? Yeah. What's the answer if someone's really, really interested? Yeah. If, if they seem more interested, then I'll say, "Well, I'm a scientist. I study psychic experience." And mm. if they continue by asking questions, and I can gauge pretty quickly if they're really interested or not. Uh, most people are interested, especially yeah. if they know that they're having a private conversation. Yeah. Uh, a very small percentage of people will stop the conversation and not bring it up again. Interesting. I would think you would, you know, uh, run into a good amount of people that uh, don't want to open that door. You know, it seems like there's a lot of uh, fear uh, with with certain folks. And then, of course, others like myself, it's the most fascinating subject in the world. So, <laughs> but uh that's interesting to you know to know that or hear that folks you know when it's private for the most part they want to hear more. Almost always. Wow. And in, in many many different contexts, any anything from the person you happen to be sitting next to on an airplane to generals, uh, CEOs of businesses, right? You name it. All, all kinds of people. Well, you know, for, it seems for a very, a very obvious reason. The reason is that we're talking about pretty common human experiences, right? But at least within Western culture, we don't know what to do with those experiences. So they they tend right. to be taboo, and people learn you, you don't talk about it until you have a a reason to feel that you're safe. Right. Right. Yeah. I think you you hit the nail on the head there. It's like it's. I would say almost everyone from any walk of life uh, has had some sort of experience at some point that has them sort of scratching their head like, hmm, what what is going on here? How, that does not fit into my neat little box, right? It doesn't fit into the box that we've been taught. Right. But in terms of the experience itself, one would think that because so many people – have experiences of this type. And even if you yourself don't have one, you may know someone that you trust who will tell you things and make your hair stand up. So it's pretty common. Yeah, and it just seems almost shocking that it's still, uh, you know, sort of looked at with such a skeptical eye, right? When almost everyone knows someone or has some sort of experience that has to have them questioning, like, is there more going on than we're being told on uh, the nightly news? Well, the skepticism is justified because if, if you start taking anecdotes at mm-hmm. face value, uh, mm-hmm. some of them are going to be false, uh, maybe yeah. innocently false. Uh, some of right. them are going to be intentionally faked. Uh, right. Some of them can be explained by other reasons. And so part of the, the of the goal in doing scientific investigations of this is to figure out ways of getting with high confidence under controlled conditions, are these kinds of experiences what they seem to be, or could there be other explanations? And so as a general rule, roughly 10 to 15% of anecdotes that people will tell you are probably really psychic. And that leaves Mm. a lot that is not. Something like 80 or 85% are mistakes or coincidences or all the variety of other possible explanations. Interesting. Interesting. So 
tell us a little bit about your your background. How did you end up in this very uh, fascinating, interesting line of work? Well, I read a lot of science fiction as a kid. All right. A lot of fairy tales, like a lot of kids do. And I, of course, was curious about uh, all of these stories. They feel interesting. I mean, it's not simply a matter of the fantasy involved in the story, but if you ask kids who have read all of the Harry Potter books, there's some sort of enthralling sense about these stories, just as there is with mythology in general. But the reason why it grabs people is because you get an underlying sense that there's something real going on here. It's obviously in the form of a story, but the story feels real. Right. So take that as a child. And then when I was a teenager, I discovered that there was a branch of science that actually looked at these kinds of experiences and and tried to figure out if they're real or not. And that's Mm -hmm. what really caught my attention. Because very early on, I've been attracted to science and mathematics, and and I'm skeptical by nature, not simply willing to accept somebody's tale because they tell me. Right. I wanted to see it for myself. So that's what caught my attention as a teenager, and it took until I was about my late 20s until I figured out that you actually, with uh, with a lot of luck and some hard work, you could craft a career where you study these kinds of phenomena as a scientist. Hmm. And tell us a little bit about that, if you would. Uh, you know, your work at the Institute, what it entails. I know it's it's very much an evidence-based approach to studying consciousness, right? Can you can you speak on that? Right. So we're interested in, in noetic experiences. That's what the Institute is named after, Institute of Noetic Sciences. Noetic comes from a, a Greek root word, uh, which is nous, and it means to know. But it means mm. to know more than simply rationally. We, most mm. people think about how do you know something. They think, well, you analytically figure it out. You rationally figure it out. But there are right. lots of ways that we know things. We know things intuitively. Uh, we know that uh, we, we can love somebody, and that's not rational. It's right. emotional knowing. And there are many kinds of ways of knowing. The kinds that we're interested in is traditionally called intuition, but mm-hmm. if you look at what the meaning of intuition is, the, the easy way of describing it is knowing without knowing how you know. Right. That's a good one. So there's two ways that can happen. The traditional or the conservative way of thinking about it is that it's forgotten expertise. So the mm-hmm. example that you can use is you're, you're a firefighter and you've been doing this for 20 years and you look at a building and there's somebody in the building and you want to get them, but you don't go which is like opposite to what you should be doing. And somebody right. said, well, why are you not going? Well, because you said, well, I know the building's going to collapse in like two seconds. Two seconds later, yeah. it collapses. Well, how did you know that? Well, through lots of experience and knowing how, how what happens when a fire is happening as to whether it's going to collapse right now or not. Right. So that's forgotten knowledge. And this, of course, this is true in every domain. We have forgotten knowledge. It becomes unconscious. But the other way is that you get information, and it does not come through memory, it does not come through expertise, and it doesn't come through the ordinary senses either. That's what we would, in the vernacular, we'd call it psychic information, but it's still part of the spectrum of intuition. It's knowing things without rationally figuring it out. 
Right. So that's what we study. So you put this now in the context of understanding the nature of consciousness itself, because that's really where the where the big question is: What is mm-hmm. consciousness? Is it generated by the brain? Is it something else? Uh, and in particular, what are the capacities of consciousness? So intuition is one one uh, domain that you can study. Uh, another is when people talk about spiritual experience, what do they mean by that? Uh, when people talk about other kinds of extraordinary experiences, what what is that? You know, is that that's simply illusion or delusion, or is it something else? So most of our studies involve laboratory experiments looking at these kinds of experiences with the goal of seeing if we can believe that they're real, they seem they are what they seem to be, or if they're illusions in some cases, or mis mismemories or things of that sort. Right. And can you can you give us some examples of what a, maybe a study would look like, uh, you know, in your lab? Sure. So uh, here's a, a common experience that people report. You drive down uh, to work in a certain route every day and you pass a whole bunch of red lights and a whole bunch of intersections. And so you, you, you kind of know the lay of the land and you don't need to pay that much attention if you've driven this route so many times. So one day you're driving to work and normally you're paying attention to five things at once, but something suddenly captures your attention about an intersection that you're approaching. And so you mm. slow down. You have a green light. Everything looks okay, but you slow down. You don't even know why you slow down. And then as you approach the intersection, somebody blasts through the red light. And they would have hit right. your broadside if you had kept going the same speed as usual. Right. Well, so I, I would call that a presentiment. It's not a precognition because you didn't know why you slowed down, mm. but a presentiment because the, the word means pre-feeling. You had a mm. bad feeling about something and you reacted to it. So in the laboratory, we simulate this kind of experience by uh, measuring somebody's physiological condition. We might look at their heart rate or their skin conductance or pupil dilation. All kinds of different things can be measured in the body. And those are are very convenient ways of measuring what's happening at an unconscious level. The body reacts unconsciously. So we we wire the person up. We sit them down in front of a, a computer screen. And we ask them to press a button. They do that. And five seconds later, a picture pops up. The picture will either be very emotional or it'll be very calm. And it's random, so nobody knows in advance what you're going to get. So the very emotional picture is our simulation of almost getting hit broadside at at an intersection. And the calm picture is everything's just going normally and there's nothing to worry about. So in an experiment, the person might see 30 to 40 pictures randomly selected in a row, each time pressing a button, waiting five seconds, the picture pops up, and then you cool down for maybe 30 seconds. So the whole Mm -hmm. experiment might take 20 minutes or so. Okay. What we're interested in is we look at the physiology of the person up to three to five seconds before the stimulus is actually shown. And remember, this is before the stimulus is even selected. It's randomly selected right. immediately before it's shown. So your okay. physiology is being measured during a period in time. It's only five seconds, but still, sure. it's before any anything has been selected yet. And what the idea of it is that if you respond unconsciously to what's about to happen, then your body is going to start becoming more aroused 
immediately before an emotional picture than before a calm picture. Mm. So I started doing this kind of experiment with lots of different kinds of physiological measures back in the mid-1990s. And as of now, there are approximately 40 published articles uh, by colleagues around the world, uh, mostly with humans, but also with uh, animals, including birds and worms, all the way down to earthworms mm. and planaria. And wow. you see this differential effect all the way down, all the way from humans down to worms. So this suggests that this is not a human-centric uh, ability, this, this wow. presentiment ability. It's more like something having to do with sent sentience. A anything yeah. that is sentient or has consciousness, even to a very limited degree, can somehow respond. Even plants, right? Well, plants we haven't tried yet. Uh, okay. Plants, in principle, ought to work, but the... Uh, the experiment would have to be done very differently. Obviously, you can't show a picture to a plant. You'd have to do some kind of stimulus that the plant finds meaningful. So we have proposals to study mimosa plants, so-called sensitive mm. plant, because mm -hmm. when they're touched, the leaves fold up. Right. So we could do this experiment, but it would take a long, long time because plants don't respond very quickly. So we'd have yeah. to basically create an automated robot kind of experiment that might last days in order to get enough data to see the effect right wow very fascinating so with with your test subjects you see i mean is is what is the sort of statistical reaction is it always there's some level of reaction prior to seeing the highly emotional image versus uh the calm image or how, how has that panned out over time well, it varies from one person or one subject to the next. Mm -hmm. uh, people appear to have something like talent for this mm -hmm. kind of effect, which they do for right. any kind of psychic phenomenon. Some people are sure, talented, sure. some people are not. Right. Uh, what, the generally, the way that we analyze the data in this experiment is for each participant, we do a statistical analysis of the amount of what amounts to nervous system arousal before calm compared to before emotional pictures on average. And then you you accumulate that data across people and you end up with a, a probability statement or sure. an odds against chance statement of how likely is the result that we've seen due to chance or maybe not due to chance. Right. So, and, and sometimes in an individual experiment, you get really good results. You might get a th odds against chance of a thousand to one indicating mm. much more arousal before an emotional picture than before a calm picture. Uh, overall, when you look at all of the experiments, all of the known experiments, roughly 40 that are known now, uh, and see what do we get in independent laboratories for doing similar experiments, uh, mm -hmm. there then becomes, there's no question at all, odds against chance of over a million to one, that people in fact become more activated before emotional pictures than before calm. Wow. And this, is, by the way, is not only pictures. It could be something as simple as an electric shock or even it's much simpler like the presence of lights flashing in your eye as compared to no lights flashing. So we right. see it in a, a wide variety. And this, by the way, the reason why you get independent people doing the experiments and different kinds of stimuli and different kinds of physiological measures is you want to gain more and more confidence by looking at the same phenomena in different ways. And if mm -hmm. in general you see the same effect over and over again, it's very likely to be a real phenomenon. Right. Wow. And so, you know, of course, this leads to the question, 
that that maybe is a sort of a, a big question. Curious how you answer. Uh, where do you think this psychic info comes from? You know, you hear uh, having had experiences with people who are, you know, as you mentioned, talented intuitives in, in my life where they have made startling predictions for me and things like that. Um, you know, what in in one case I can think of where it's like, hey, I see this or this. And it was like kind of like two different sort of probabilities or timelines, if you will. What is your opinion uh, after all this research and all these years spent studying this phenomenon from sort of a scientific standpoint? uh, You know, do you have a theory? I imagine you do of where it actually comes from. Well, I think it's, it is all related to the nature of consciousness and the Mm -hmm. role of consciousness in the physical world. That's what it's all about. Uh, When scientists first started looking at these kinds of effects, the underlying assumption was that it probably had something to do with signaling, like electromagnetic mm-hmm. signals and one of the other four forces that are known in physics, that there was some kind mm-hmm. of physics that, that explained this. Uh, and there are still some scientists who believe that there is something related to maybe thermodynamics or some other aspect of known physics that would explain this. And by mm-hmm. the way, within physics... Both the, the mathematical equations for classical physics and for quantum physics and electrodynamics and thermodynamics, well, not actually not so much thermodynamics, but there's other domains of physics, the equations are called time symmetric. This means that the, the flow of time, as Einstein said, is an illusion. Right. General relativity and special relativity are all about strange things that happen with flexible time. So from a pure physics point of view, the idea that our experience of time is not exactly correct, Mm. that's well understood, at least from the equations. And and even now in experiments, uh, the so-called delayed choice experiment in quantum mechanics, Mm -hmm. it's possible to demonstrate that things in the future can influence things in the present. This is not even that controversial in physics. Where it becomes controversial is trying to then bring it into human scale. How do we translate? And that is a very controversial area. But I think that that may be pointed in the right direction, but I think there's a more fundamental reason why this works. And that is that if you you think of science as built by uh, in the form of a pyramid, where the pyramid is a, a series of hierarchies of the way that we think about how reality is stuck together, the bottom mm-hmm. of that pyramid, this knowledge pyramid, is physics. We assume that everything is sitting on some kind of deep physics. And then from that emerges chemistry, and from that emerges biology, and from that emerges psychology. And somewhere near the top of this pyramid, we have consciousness. That's what the neurosciences tell us, that the brain generates Mm -hmm. consciousness. Right. From that model, it's extremely difficult to account for how any psychic phenomenon would work. It's Mm -hmm. just we're just consciousness is way too far away from physics in order to to understand Mm -hmm. it. Mm-hmm. This is one of the reasons why I have many colleagues who are scientists who say, well, precognition is, lo- is logically impossible. It doesn't matter whether you have evidence for it because it can't exist. Mm-hmm. And I have to remind them that that's because they have a certain model in mind. Right. And it's true that within within a standard scientific worldview, it's very difficult to account not only for precognition, but for telepathy or clairvoyance or anything else. Sure. So – it's been thinking about these issues and how do we plug in psychic phenomena into our existing worldview that right. I realized one day that we're probably barking up the wrong tree. 
It's like we're, we're asking the wrong question. The, the real question is, what is consciousness and how does it work? And, and, and how do we plug it into the rest of what we know in science? Well, it turns out that in the various lists of the most outstanding unsolved problems within science, the consciousness is always in the top of the list. We have no idea how consci- what consciousness right. is, where it comes from, how it works. We don't know. Right. That's useful in the sense that uh, because it is so different than virtually everything else that we study in science, it is because it's an internal process, whereas science yeah. is really good at studying the, out, the outside world, the external <laughs> right, world. Right. It is very bad right. so far at studying internal experience. So not yeah. too surprisingly, you look at people who do study internal experience, most of it is meditation, and within mm, yeah. people who meditate, people who have a long-term meditation experience, they have no question that psychic phenomena are real because they encounter it all the time. Right. So that provides a clue. And the clue is that, and you have to go to philosophy in order to, to get why this is even a viable clue, what we need to, need to deal with here is the metaphysics of science, not, not the physics. And the mm-hmm. metaphysics is what a philosopher would, would deal with in terms of understanding the fundamentals of the models that we're using. And so, from that perspective, maybe we're not right that the, that the worldview is sitting on, on uh, physics. It's, maybe it's not matter and energy that's the mm. bottom. Maybe it's consciousness that's at the right. bottom. So what right. I'm talking about here, of course, in, in philosophy is known as idealism, and there are many other terms for it. But And, of course, it's one of the bases of lots of Eastern philosophy as well. Sure. But ultimately, all there is is consciousness. All that you can mm-hmm. know is consciousness. Uh, and it's, from, from, this, uh, from an idealist point of view, consciousness is prior to mass and energy and time and space. Mm-hmm. It's sort and of so the cause, the, and all this other stuff is the effect, right? In well, a sense. Or think of it in terms of everything we know is an emergence. It emerges right. from awareness, emerges from consciousness in some way. If that is true, then suddenly psychic phenomena of any type, including precognition, becomes easy to understand. And the reason why it's important to think of it as being at the bottom of the knowledge pyramid is because it doesn't change anything that we know in science. Everything we know mm-hmm. in physics remains the same, and everything right. we know in chemistry and biology and psychology, they all remain the same, As so we don't throw away any of the textbooks. What we've done is put the entire heap on a new mm. ground. Platform. Yeah, so yeah. this new platform is important because just like there are electrons that emerge into new forms, well, consciousness emerges into new forms as well. Uh, we right. don't we don't necessarily see it, but it would yeah. it would be there just like we don't see you know we don't need to deal with electrons when we're we're doing something in psychology, but if it wasn't there it wouldn't work. Right. So by the same token, our consciousness emerges into many different forms. It's always there. It's the same stuff right. at the psychological level as it is at the at the ground level, but right. it is also prior to space time. And prior mm. to matter and energy, that means that each of us who enjoys some degree of consciousness, like all sentient creatures would, have the capacity at some level to access things that are not bound in space or time. Mm. And that is exactly why psychic phenomena seem strange. They're, mm. not, they're unbound by space and time. That's the only reason right. that they seem strange. Right, so, right. This is my working hypothesis uh, of, of what's going on here, and 
And I, I use this way of describing it because it's, I think a, as a scientist, it's essential to keep what we know about science that works to not throw it away. There's way too much that is already known about how things work. And so that stuff is good. This mm-hmm. adds, this basically just expands our understanding of, of what science is in a way that suddenly makes a lot of things that were previously thought of as anomalies no longer quite so anomalous. Right. Yeah, that makes a whole lot of sense to me. I really like the way you explain that. And uh, sort of like uh, we've got had one through 10 all this time and there's something missing and let's add in the zero. Right. It's uh, it's just this foundational uh, premise. Do you think that this is, you know, from from all of your study, all of your work, do you think this is the inevitable uh, conclusion of where science leads uh, that this becomes, you know, 100 years from now, they're looking back saying, wow, how did we ever even look at anything not knowing that consciousness is the sort of uh, root uh, of it all? Do you think that's what it's heading to? Well, that's my guess. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And so your use of the idea of the counting numbers one through 10, is a mm-hmm. very good analogy because people were counting one through 10 forever because we have 10 fingers. Mm-hmm. And it mm-hmm. took a long time for someone to come up with the idea of zero. Right. But once right. that happened, it, it, the mathematics exploded because it right. provided a whole new way of thinking about what numbers mean. Mm. By the same token, you can draw a parallel. You did think of this knowledge pyramid that I was describing. And now, mm-hmm. at the very top is everyday experience. It's like common mm-hmm. sense. Well, everyday right. experience is like the, the counting numbers. It's like one through ten, right? I can't mm-hmm. have zero of a something. I could have one or two or ten. Right. So, if you now imagine that there's a parallel to this, this pyramid, where the deeper you go, further and further down into physics, the further away you get from everyday experience, the more abstract the mathematics becomes. You have mm-hmm. counting numbers uh, and then integers and then uh, rational numbers and irrational numbers and complex numbers and set theory and on and on and on. In each case, way more complex until you get to the bottom, which is what quantum mechanics uses now, which right. is so complex that unless you're a mathematician, mm. you don't, you can't even talk about it. Right, so right. This is a little bit like the discovery of zero. Well, it may be mm. that... The discovery of zero in terms of our scientific models will be that, oh, we're actually not sitting on physics. We're sitting on something that's much deeper than that. Right, right. Yeah, I love that. That makes so much sense. And it leads me into a question about your latest book. You've written several books, uh, and your latest, Supernormal, is uh, about one of my favorite words, magic, right? Uh, what? Let's talk about that word. It's a very charged word. What do you consider to be magic? Well, Supernormal is actually about the yoga superpowers. Mm. And I specifically chose the word supernormal rather than supernatural, because mm-hmm. of the distinction that's made within yoga. So mm. you have the you, you go back to the original classical form of yoga, uh, which was written by Patanjali about 2,000 years ago, and it's called the Yoga Sutras. So the Yoga Sutras are interesting because that was the first time that you find a written record of what up to that time, probably for millennia, had been an oral tradition. And so you can see then it captured an oral tradition that goes back into the mists of ancient history. 
And one of the four little books that constitute the Yoga Sutras, uh, book number three, is all about the superpowers that arise as a result of dedicated meditative practice. Mm. So you you look through this language, it's all written in Sanskrit, but there are, of course, lots of translations. The translations basically say that there are roughly 25 different kinds of powers, and they call them siddhis, S-I-D-D-H-I in in Mm -hmm. Sanskrit. And it it means, it roughly translates into something like attainment or perfection. Mm. So what happens when you attain certain degree of perfection in meditation? And we translate those into the words that we'd use today. They're talking about telepathy, clairvoyance, precognition, and psychokinesis. Exactly mm. the kinds of things that we study in the laboratory. <laughs> they talk about some of them as being way more powerful than anything that we generally see, like levitation and super strength and super speed, like comic book mm. superhero stuff. Right. But that's what they're talking about in this book 2,000 years ago. Wow. So. You either have to say, well, this was like a, a fantasy book that they were writing, or they knew what they were talking about. So right. since we know that uh, the elementary cities, simple precognition, simple telepathy, and so on, those have been now studied for about 150 years by science, and we have very high confidence that those are real things. So that means that when Patanjali was writing the Yoga Sutras, he probably wasn't making it up. He yeah. does say, and many commentators have said afterwards, that it that things like levitation are real, and super strength is real, and even invisibility is real, except mm. it's extremely rare. It's yeah. extremely rare even by people who are lifelong meditators, whereas right. some of the other cities, like uh, telepathy and precognition, are pretty common. Mm. So, as in any domain, you find some people are talented and other people are not. Fortunately, because we're able to look at the simple cities in the laboratory, we know that they're very likely to be real. And you don't right. need to be a superstar in order to, to, to demonstrate them. Right. Right. And, there, you know, there's it instantly makes me think of, um, you know, accounts like Carlos Castaneda, uh, for example, you know, where there's accounts of supposed uh you know, teleportation and things like that. Um, so there's certainly been people along the way who have claimed to have done some of these things, even in recent history, right? And obviously not happening or being claimed all the time on every street corner, <laughs> but it's uh, it's it's still floating around as, you know, something that, uh, you know, and I'm sure there's probably all kinds of interesting accounts that I've never even heard of that maybe even you have, which I'd be interested to hear if you have some good ones. But, uh, you know, it's it's yeah, it's such a fascinating, fascinating um, idea. Well, this is the challenge of an investigator. Uh, there are lots of people who make all kinds of claims about sure. special powers. Yeah, most of them are are telling. They're not telling the truth, right? So, and it doesn't even take muddies the waters to, a bit on something that's already very tricky, huh? <sighs> right. So one of the things that you learn after a while when you start studying these kinds of phenomena is to be even more skeptical than the typical mm. skeptic. Because you yeah. learn that there are ways of faking these kinds of things. You learn that people are some some people are motivated to fake. Uh, I have a very large collection of traditional magic methods. I'm talking about mm. stage magic and, and gimmicks mm. and things that people use to fake these things. And you you need to be educated about uh, how you can fake these kinds of effects in order mm-hmm. to be able to do proper investigation. Mm-hmm. So that's why I have a large collection of of methods for faking these things. And 
you find occasionally that people do have real skills. Very, very few people have what might be called psychokinetic skills. Those are the ones that, of course, capture people's attention because, mm-hmm. that, I mean, that's what you see in every movie and television show having to do with psychic powers. There are people making things float and they're flying and right, it's, right, right. it's very exciting, but that is exceptionally rare. So mm. rare that uh, even after many, many years of doing this kind of research, I've never found anybody in the laboratory who could reliably do anything that I would say was mm. psychokinetic at a macro scale, meaning something you could see with your naked eye. Uh, right. We have seen lots of examples of people doing microscopic effects that you, mm. you you measure and then you need statistics in order to be able to detect it. That's not mm-hmm. too unusual. But to mm-hmm. see macroscopic effects, I've yet to see something that convinced me that it's real. Interesting. So what, what have you seen that would be uh, among the most intriguing? Well, I'm going to uh, contradict myself a little bit because actually I have seen a few things that were macroscopic in the sense that these were large-scale effects that there's no obvious normal explanation for. And uh, the one example that I I take as real is the one that I did myself. Oh, wow. Uh, And... This shows you how, I mean, it's partially simply a matter of the skepticism that is necessary in science. You have to be very careful about accepting somebody else's word for something. And even if you see a macro effect, you immediately start thinking, well, how did that person fake it? So I had heard, as many of us have, about uh, spoon bending, metal bending. Mm, Yeah. So I've gone to a number of the the so-called metal bending parties where people uh, pick up a spoon or a fork and they start bending it. And it is the claim, of course, is that it's paranormal. Well, I know right. lots of ways of faking spoon bending. There's lots of ways of doing it as, as an illusion trick. And you use gimmicks to, to bend it and use uh, ways of deflecting people's attention while they're bending it and so on. So I knew all of that. I was watching people very carefully uh, when I went to these uh, spoon bending parties. Occasionally, Mm -hmm. I would see somebody do something that looked peculiar. It didn't fit any of the known methods that I know to 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 do in a fake way. A fake, yeah. But I still was skeptical because I figured, well, they just knew a magic trick that I didn't know yet. Right, right. So one time, this this was now about fifteen years ago. I went to a spoon bending party, and and I had heard about a woman who was able to bend the bowl of a soup spoon. Of a, of a large soup spoon to bend a bowl in half. Well, that's really difficult. Mm. I mean, it, you can do it, but it takes an enormous amount of force, more force than the average person can do with their fingers. Because yeah. the, if you think about the shape of the bowl, the bowl doesn't want to bend. It's it's in a stiff condition and especially doesn't want to be bent over. So, mm-hmm. uh, so I decided, okay, I'm going to find somebody who says they can do that. I sat down in front of this lady and then I was mimicking what she was doing. I was holding a big soup spoon and I was trying to mimic her hand motions to kind of get a feel for what she was doing. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're doing that for a while. Nothing's happening. And then somebody behind me says, oh, look what happened. So I'm, I'm looking at the lady and nothing happened to her spoon. And they said, no, look at what you did, mm-hmm. meaning me. So I looked uh-huh. and I had bent the bowl of the spoon almost almost halfway over, about a quarter of the way. And then they said, well, keep bending it. So I I just pinched it, and it bent all the way over the bowl of the spoon. Well, I remember remember looking at it and immediately checking my fingers to see if I was using force. 
because you're right. in a dissociated state, you might use force. And there was no evidence that I was using force. I just pinched it over like it was a piece of taffy. Wow. Uh, and then I kind of just stared at it dumbfounded because I was <laughs> holding it the whole time. I know no one else had – it wasn't like somebody gave it to me. I did right. And I felt wow. what it felt like when I bent it over. So here's a case where I, I'm put in a position of being very skeptical about these things, but I also <laughs> can't deny my own experience. Right. So I did it. Right. I have this spoon. It's still bent. It's wow. not the kind of spoon where you put it in hot water and it decides it's going to fall apart. It's a, right. a real big, heavy spoon, soup spoon. That Metal somehow spoon. I, I did something that, that you can't do. I know I can't do. In fact, I got the same kind of spoon afterwards and measured the amount of foot-pounds of force. You mm -hmm. used a torque wrench to see how much force is required to do this by force. And right. it was way beyond, like 10 times more than I can possibly muster, even using with leverage with my fingers. Wow. Wow. So I have no explanation for this, but it's consistent with, in a spontaneous way, with the notion that in the right frame of mind, right. strange things can happen that look like super strength. So right. that's my one story uh, that, that I, <laughs> I can rely on for super strength. All right. Uh, I haven't found anybody who can do that on demand, although right. I'm more inclined to believe that there are some cases in these metal bending parties where people have done things like bend a quarter inch bar of aluminum. And aluminum is very stiff, especially a quarter inch bar. They can bend it. I don't know mm. how they can bend it. I can't. I mean, I can consciously try to, to bend the bar like that, and it doesn't do anything. So. Right. So strange things can happen in unusual states of mind. Right. Wow. So, what, what, do you recall your state, at, you know, when this happened? Do you, you know, were you in sort of an altered state? Was there, had you suspended disbelief uh, within yourself, you know, prior to this sort of event? I went to a state which is sometimes described as effortless striving. Mm. There's no effort at all. But you have to strive to do the task more than you've ever tried to do anything in your life. You need extreme motivation without any effort. So it's a paradoxical wow. condition. And I was in this peculiar state. I remember that I really, really wanted to do this as though my life depended on it. And yet at the same time, a part of me didn't care at all. And I've, I've tried to re-evoke that sense. And right. sometimes I can get close to it, but... There was something about that particular context that I was able to do it, and I can't make it happen. Yeah. Wow. What? That's fascinating. Have you heard many claims, or, or heard any claims that um, that you give merit to in regards to, like I mentioned, uh, something even more extreme like teleportation? Because, of course, you know we we know that. Um, you know, uh, they're with quantum entanglement and this sort of teleportation at um, atomic level with, you know, uh, particles and things and so forth. We have some evidence of that sort of thing. Have you, what are your thoughts on that? And have you heard anything um, that seemed, I know you probably haven't seen it. You probably would have told me that story, but um, have you heard anything that, you know, I, I think instantly pops to my head hearing about like, uh, you know, Tibetan monks and things like that who, who claim have claimed to be able to do these things. Um, is there anything that you've heard that uh, sort of rings true or you suspect could be true? Well, yes, I've heard of 
uh, the occasional person in China who claims to be able mm-hmm. to do this. I've seen mm-hmm. videos that mm-hmm. apparently show such things. Uh, the conditions, and I've spoken to the researchers who have done these tests, and it's it's not under sufficient level of control to know mm-hmm. if the video is what it appears to be. So, right. so I, I can't pass an assessment on the Chinese research that I've seen. Uh, I I do know people whose opinions that I trust, and I know that they're good uh, investigators and observers who have seen the occasional person, uh, usually in South America, typically Brazil, uh, where ports are said to have occurred. So these are small objects, like little rings or gems or things of that sort, uh, that that seem to fall out of the ceiling uh, without without somebody surreptitiously throwing it. They just seem to appear, mm-hmm. uh, and and they and things show up. So, mm. I you know again the, this sounds it's my reaction to it is very similar to my reaction to metal bending. I've had friends tell me that they've been able to bend things. They were even able to show me things that they bent, but not right. being able to see it firsthand. I, right. I don't know what to make of it. All I can say right. is credible people have told me incredible things. So right. that that's about as far as I get. And by the way, this is why when we go into the laboratory, we are asking something to happen on demand under our conditions, because then we could have confidence if something happens. Right. Uh, this means we study microscopic forms of, of psychokinetic effects and lots of different kinds of perceptual things like precognition. And those are relatively mm. easy to get yeah. as compared to these things that capture our attention like teleportation and levitation. Right, right. Yeah, one of the first experiences I had was with uh, that sort of opened me up to the world of metaphysics and uh, sort of stepping out of what I was taught to believe coming from a very conservative, you know, religious, you know, Christian background uh, was meeting uh, a girl who claimed to have some psychic ability. And, you know, at one point she uh, we did this test where she, you know, said, okay, I'll be able to read what you're thinking. And I even remember it was like the color brown and she said brown. And I'm just like, hold on. How did, what, <laughs> what just happened? And did, to this day, I've been like, okay, did, was there something, well, you know, how did I, how did I get tricked? Right. Of course I'm right. open to the idea that she actually just, you know, um, this just was true telepathy. But Mm -hmm. um, I think a lot of people have had those sort of experiences uh, where, you know, you're thinking about something. Then of course the other person sitting next to you brings it up. That's not an expected topic of conversation or person, but uh, that seems to be one that's very common, uh, you know, a lot more common as well. Would you say? Well, if you have two people who know each other well, then they have a certain degree of, of overlapping memory shared mm-hmm. memory. So mm-hmm. a way a way not to do a telepathy test is to uh, is to ask two people who have been out sailing all day to come into the laboratory and simply ask one to just think of anything that comes to mind and then ask the other, well what do you think that person's thinking of? Because mm-hmm. their minds are going to be saturated with things having to do with sailing. Right, so right. You were already biased from the get-go. Yep. This is why when you, you do a proper test, you use ra- randomly selected images, uh, you do multiple trials, you know, you do a lot of things within the protocol to make sure that you're not accidentally going to bias the results simply by what people know. And a skeptic would say that a really good cold reader 
This means somebody who is paying very close attention to uh, the way your face looks and what you, what your eyes are doing and ask leading questions. You could learn a lot about somebody very quickly by mm. both paying attention and asking leading questions. And the assumption, the skeptical assumption is that a psychic reader is simply using those tricks of the trade. But we right. know from the laboratory studies that some people are exceptionally good. They get yeah. information without asking anything, without right. even seeing the person, without even being near them. They still can get real information. So some people do have that talent. Uh, and it's, it's, I wouldn't say it's extremely common, but some people can do it. All right. Well, now seems like a good moment to take a quick minute to tell those of you who aren't familiar a bit about our sponsor, Gaia. I've been a big fan of Gaia for many, many years now, which is why they are the only content provider I've ever reached out to in regards to potentially supporting the Positive Head podcast. So needless to say, I'm very excited they're now supporting the show. Gaia truly is my personal go-to source for streaming consciousness content on the web. They have an incredible 7,000 plus exclusive videos covering 5,000 years of wisdom. Just to give you guys an example, on uh, April 24th on the show Buzzsaw, Dennis McKenna, who is the brother of the world's most well-known psychonaut, Terrence McKenna, makes a guest appearance to discuss the spiritual implications and mystical experiences that psychedelic substances can induce. I mean, it'd be pretty hard to be more up my alley, right? And as you all hear me constantly say, it's a daily conscious effort to maintain an elevated vibration. And if you're looking to go deep down the rabbit hole to do so, then Gaia is the best place I know of to do it, period. And you can sign up for your first month for only 99 cents at Gaia.com forward slash positive head. That's spelled G-A-I-A dot com forward slash positive head. Check it out. You know, one of the things uh, that I wanted to ask you about is, uh, you know, some scientists having uh, supernormal experiences during meetings discussing uh, such topics. And there's uh, one from a psychologist, Paul Ekman, uh, during a meeting with the Dalai Lama that you uh, you mentioned that I wanted I would love to hear the details of. Right. So Paul Ekman is is a famous psychologist, probably best known for his work on studying micro expressions in the face. Mm-hmm. So uh, the, this he has training programs for police and, and, and interrogators and that sort of thing to okay. look for very small movements in various portions of the face, which are tells. Somebody's lying, their face is going to behave differently than they're not lying. That sort of thing. So gotcha. Paul Ekman uh, was one of a number of people who have had uh, dialogues with the Dalai Lama. And Paul describes in uh, one of his books that in a meeting with the Dalai Lama, he suddenly felt different in a way that it took him a while to figure out why he felt different. And he realized that it's because he didn't feel angry. And he admitted in the book that he had spent a lot of his time in his lifetime feeling angry all the time having like this Mm. internal aggression, anger kind of feeling. And he only knew that it had gone away initially when it did go away in the presence of the Dalai Lama. He didn't even know what it was. He just felt like something is missing. I feel better. And he decided, well, it's because I don't feel angry in the presence of this person. Well, it turns out that, again, from a yogic perspective, that one of the cities that arises as a result of this dedicated meditative practice is called radiating goodness. 
It's a, a type of power where people in your vicinity feel calmer. They feel better. They feel good. Wow. So Paul was, of course, intrigued by this and asked the Dalai Lama to recommend somebody who, who uh, one of his monks that could do this particular power. Uh, and he did. He, he found a monk who could do that and then started testing that monk with his friends to see if they reported anything unusual subjectively without letting him know what he was looking for. Right. Right, and they did. They they reported that there was some unusual sense of peace or calm. Wow, that was associated with the mere presence of this person. So, wow. that's. I mean, this is a strange superpower to have. I think it's right. a nice one to have. What a beautiful uh, one! Yeah, yeah. I mean, and this is uh, this idea when if you scale it up. Uh, it kind of goes along with the uh, with some of the ideas that the transcendental meditators have been testing for many years, which is if you get a whole bunch of meditators that are coherently meditating on calmness and peace, that the effect spreads out and infects people in the vicinity, even right. even that they don't even know that there are meditators around. It just seems to spread out to some distance, and right. so crime and things like that. Uh, sure. Uh, Anger in the vicinity will simply start to decline. So maybe, I mean, the Paul's experience is an example of that. Uh, we so far don't have any laboratory studies that confirm that this kind of thing under controlled conditions. It wouldn't be impossible to do, but people who have that particular skill are not that common, at least to right. a degree they can have them turn it on and turn it off. So uh, we have a kind of equivalence to that. We have a way of testing the Jedi mind trick uh, that Obi-Wan used in the first Star Wars film, where he said, uh, these are not the droids you're looking for. Right. So that's a matter of clouding somebody's mind or, or affecting their thoughts. And right. there are laboratory analogs of that that have been conducted, and it turns out that that is true. That you right. can cause someone to become distracted or cause someone to become more focused remotely, mentally. Mm. Yeah, I saw uh, – it makes me think of a – I can't remember his name now – a hypnotist. Uh, I want to say he was uh, from England. He, and he would go into uh, stores and do these sort of – these perform these sort of uh distractions and and as he's handing people paper say you know kind of like subconsciously say things that you know like oh take it it's fine it's fine but he's really talking about something else a story he's talking to this person about as he distracts them and he pays for like a thousand dollar ring with like pieces of paper and the guy mm -hmm. takes it you know mm -hmm. uh so it's uh, a very interesting example of of sort of you know in a sense the same thing Right. The difference is that uh, a good hypnotist can cause people to be distracted in that way. Uh -huh. uh, and certainly in, in the Star Wars movie, Obi-Wan is in the presence of, of the uh, guards. Mm -hmm. So in the laboratory, though, you don't want someone to be near or be able to see that there's somebody mm -hmm. that's trying to do the man mental manipulation because then you have a mm -hmm. confound between ordinary forms of influence that hypnosis mm -hmm. uses versus psychic mm -hmm. forms of influence. Right, so right. So we strictly separate people so that you're not looking at somebody you can't figure out what's going on and do things like behavioral measures or attention measures to see if somebody remotely can mentally cause you to, to change your behavior or attention. And so that's what I'm talking about. Not, not right. Not what amounts to a more a simpler version, which right, is right. 
being in, in somebody's presence and, and uh, being influenced by them. Gotcha. Gotcha. And so what are your thoughts on um, uh, remote viewing? Have you done any studies of that? Uh, I actually haven't done studies with remote viewing, although I've participated in them. Uh, both when I was at Princeton University, there were a series of uh, studies on what they call precognitive remote viewing or precognitive remote perception. Mm-hmm. And when I, I was doing this kind of work for the U.S. government, uh, the whole program at the time, the, the classified at the time, but no longer, was all about remote viewing, psychic spying. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I, I saw lots of people doing this who were very talented and saw experiments as they were taking place. But it's one of the few areas of, of psychic research that I haven't actually run as an experiment myself, uh, possibly because I saw others doing it and I was convinced that that's, that's real. It's a real thing. Mm. Wow. Uh, I didn't feel quite as much motivation perhaps to try it myself. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, what are your thoughts on, I, I find remote viewing and for those of you listening who maybe aren't familiar with remote viewing, it's essentially, uh, well, you, you, uh, Dean, you probably explain it better than me. Uh, maybe you can give a quick, quick explanation of what it is. Well, remote viewing is a modern euphemism for clairvoyance and clairvoyance is the ability to perceive, uh, through space or through time without the use of the ordinary senses. And as I'm talking, I'm remembering that I actually did run a, a remote viewing experiment. I forgot about it. Oh, really? Oh, really? Uh, this was back in 1999, I think, or 98 or 99, where I was working with Russell Targ. And mm. uh, Russell was one of the founders of the, the uh, psychic spying program at SRI International, which is where I met him. Uh, and we did r- remote viewing experiments uh to, they were pretty classical, uh, in this case involving pictures rather than what's called an outbound experiment. So the, the reason why the term remote viewing came about is because originally when people were doing these experiments, they would have two people involved. One would be the viewer and the other would be called an outbounder. So the uh, before the whole experiment starts, there there's in your area, say, five different locations uh, each each one of which is as different from each other as you can imagine. Real location, somewhere out there within 20 minutes of where you are. So you as the viewer have to figure out uh, where is this person going? Where are they, where mm. are they going to go? Well, that person doesn't know yet, so they leave the laboratory with somebody who's going to drive them. Once they're in the car, a random decision is made and they go to one of the five places. They drive mm. to the place, it might take 20 minutes, and then they hang out there for 20 minutes and then they come back. So now you're the viewer, you're all alone, or you have an interviewer with you who doesn't know where the person has gone, and you do a, a process where you're trying to imagine where is the person now, what is their experience like, and the the idea of the viewing part is as, as though you are looking at the scene through that person's eyes, and you're wow. giving a description. So the, the way this analysis is uh, of the data is produced is uh, if I'm the viewer, I've made sketches and I've made little notes and stuff which are capturing my impressions. I might get a visual image. I might get a, an other snatch of some kind of sensory input, and I'd write it all down. And so now I give my impressions on paper to a judge. And a judge sees my impressions and sees pictures of five places, one of which was the real place that the person went, 
and then four decoys, which were the other four places they could have gone. So right. as a judge, I have to match which one is the best match. I have remote right. viewers' impressions, and I have a real place. So right. a hit would be that the judge selects the real place right. using my information, and a miss is he chose one of the other four places. So that's a very simple form of, an, of this kind of experiment, and they've been done maybe 1,500 or maybe 2,000 such uh, trials and experiments at various times. And overall, the evidence is extremely clear that talented people can do this. Right. And this is one of the reasons why the U.S. government had a classified program for about 20 years, because it was good enough to be used for espionage. Wow. Yeah, that's that's fascinating for, for any skeptical people out there. It's like if the U.S. government has been you know, actively using this tool, there's obviously something to it. Now, I think back to a book that I read many years ago. I want to say it was Cosmic Explorer or something. I forget the author, but he was remote viewing. And then he started, um, you know, remote viewing uh, different things in time and space, like, you know, things from the future, other planets, other, you know, past, you know, maybe the time that Jesus was on alive, things like that. I, I found that some of the stories and, you know, accounts of what they saw were fascinating. Curious what your, what your thoughts are on the um, probability of that being, um, you know, correct or true or real. Well, that's the problem, isn't it? Because you don't yeah. know. You, you right. can't, if you have a target that you can't get ground truth on, right. that you don't right, right. know what the answer is, then it becomes a story. It might yeah. be a really nice story and fun and interesting, but if there's no way to <laughs> right, check right. it, it remains right. a story. So right. all of the, the experiments that I'm talking about and everything we do in the laboratory, we know what the ground truth is. So mm -hmm. we can make a valid statistical argument about whether or not what we're seeing is is true or not true. Mm. Uh, the rest of it is certainly is interesting. People have have looked rem using remote viewing to look at the at Mars and look at UFOs and look at all kinds of interesting things, but it has to remain at the level of story. Yeah, yeah. So you wrote a couple other books, uh, The Conscious Universe and Tangled Minds, uh, which I'm very interested to read. Um, and I'd love just a quick sort of overview of what your findings are. What What is your thoughts on the ultimate nature of reality and consciousness? Is this a fully alive, you know, is it all one consciousness? Uh, is it, uh, are we, in, you know, is it a holographic reality? We've had Elon, people like Elon Musk say recently, you know, I think it's one in a billion chance we're not in a simulation a simulated version of reality what is your what is your take with all your study and and research well for anybody who's interested in what the, the nature of consciousness and reality are you if you ignore all of the evidence for psychic phenomena or evidence of survival of consciousness you just set that aside and you assume that none of it is real it's very very easy to to kind of fall into the standard scientific way of thinking about reality and to mm. assume that we're actually very smart, that we've practically figured it all out. There are a couple right. of threads that are not completely tied up yet, but the we know things all the way down from the sub-quantum level all the way up to the universe uh, and everything in between. And yes, every, every discipline has a few new things to learn, uh, but it's pretty much wrapped up. That's, right, right. The, that's the standard view. But 
once you start taking into account that there may be more things about consciousness that don't fit that model in a particular psychic phenomena that can be verified in the laboratory and some aspects of survival research, which are also very intriguing, it blows the, the conventional model out of the water. Because right. it means that we actually don't understand what consciousness is or its capacities at all, at least not from yeah. a scientific perspective. So, right. as I said earlier, if you start thinking of new ways of expanding the metaphysics of, of science, then you start moving closer and closer to what amounts to the esoteric traditions. And this includes Eastern philosophy, Western idealism, and esoterica as described in Hermeticism and Neoplatonism and all that whole lineage. When you do that, and you, you recast these ancient ideas into modern form, what you find is that the leading edge of science today in almost every discipline is starting to actually go back to ideas from the esoteric literature. It's right. explained in terms of, uh, as you said, that the reality is a simulation, or reality is a hologram, or reality is made of information, or made out of mathematics. You see more right. and more mainstream people writing about these topics. The consciousness is important in some way that we overlooked before. Uh, that information is way more fundamental than physics, than, at least in the physical world. And some mathematicians believe that mathematics literally is reality. We live in a symbolic mm. reality. Well, sure. that's very, very close to the traditional notion of what magic is, real magic. And that brings us to the book, which will come out uh, early next year, which is on this very topic. It's looking at traditional notions of magic and casting them into modern scientific terms. And it turns out that the degree of correspondence between these ancient ideas and now leading edge scientific ideas is much, much closer than most people think. Wow. Yeah, that sounds fascinating, uh, like a, a fascinating um, subject matter for uh, a, a book, uh, particularly coming from you. I'd be uh, very interested in checking that out. When is when do you plan to release it? You still well, in the writing actually, phase? Or? No, I, the manuscript is in and the, it's in production now, but I'm, I'm told that it, it probably the beginning of next year is when it'll actually appear. Wonderful. Well, I'll definitely be, be looking for that. Do you have a, uh, a title? that you've you've landed on well the working title is real magic but oh. even that isn't set yet so this you know when you i'm working with uh, penguin random house a big publisher and mm -hmm. they have many people in many departments involved in production of a book so my yep. job is over i've i've given yeah, them right. the manuscript uh they take over now and do their own form of magic and then suddenly <laughs> right, a book appears right. <laughs> Voila! <laughs> Abracadabra, right? As I speak, I create. Something like that, yeah. Something like that. <laughs> well, this has been absolutely fascinating, Dean. Uh, what is the best way for people who want to follow your work uh, to to connect with you and, and, and follow what you're doing? Well, my personal website is deanraden.com. Uh, where I work is the Institute of Noetic Sciences, which is noetic.org. Uh, I have a Facebook, a personal Facebook account, but it's maxed out at 5,000 people. So I have a 
um, a, a, I don't know what it's called, a personality page or something like that, which is, mm-hmm. has un- unlimited amount of people who can like that page. Right. Um, and I have a Twitter account and all the usual kinds of social media. I'm working now on a new website, which I'm not giving, not going to give the name yet, but that will uh, be, have much more information about the new book. Um, and that, so it, it won't be, it won't go live probably till the near the end of the year. And that'll have lots more information out. on it. Excellent. Well, Dean, thank you so much for taking the time to connect with us and share some of the, uh, a little bit of insight into your world. It's fascinating. I absolutely love getting the, you know, I feel like science and spirituality are sort of doing a dance now that is unprecedented that you, uh, you know, and you're someone who's right on the the leading edge of that uh, dance. You know, I do have one other question for you. I'm curious uh, after all your work and having such a scientific mind, but then also, you know, looking at this metaphysical, what would be, uh, you know, super normal, uh, information what is your your thought uh, all, you know on the ultimate nature of reality Do, i'm assuming you have come to the conclusion that we all uh continue to exist uh beyond physical form is that correct is that a correct assumption uh kind of but not exactly so mm-hmm. i i assume at this point my my working hypothesis is mm-hmm. that consciousness is fundamental so by consciousness, I, I mean here uh, something like awareness. There's some primordial mm-hmm. awareness that's simply out there, and it can mm-hmm. take dif- take on different shapes and forms, and some of those forms we see as physics and some as chemistry and so on. As far as survival of personal consciousness, I'm not so sure. Mm. Uh, there is intriguing evidence, experimental evidence, field studies, reincarnation studies are interesting, near-death experiences are interesting. Uh, what do you think point, about the afterlife experiments, the, the book, The well, Afterlife Experiments? And that too. See, so there's mm-hmm. there's different classes of experiments, all, all kind of mm-hmm. pointing to the, the direction that something persists. But what's mm-hmm. not clear to me at all, at least not from the, the existing evidence, is that something personal persists. Mm. Mm-hmm. Like I can easily accept that there's you, 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 your body dies and some form of awareness remains, but maybe mm-hmm. it has access to your memories and maybe it doesn't. If it doesn't mm. have access to your memories, you're just a disembodied piece of awareness. You're mm-hmm. like a drop in the ocean. You may very well quickly dissolve back into the ocean and you just become part of the big thing. Mm-hmm. Whether So the real issue is whether your memories, that's what makes you is your memories, mm-hmm. your personality. We don't mm-hmm. know if that persists. Now, of course, mm-hmm. there are certainly there are ideas like the Akashic Record where everything is recorded. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe yep. that's true and maybe it's not true. We don't have good there ways of There seems to be some it. evidence from, you know, with people, even in, I can take firsthand, you know, um, examples of communicating, you know, supposedly through a psychic medium with my, you know, a dead relative where there's details that come through that are, you know, would come from the memory of that that you know former physical entity uh and there seems to be a lot of that sort of uh evidence yes from so we've done studies with mediums as well we mm-hmm. can confirm that mediums can get accurate information and mm-hmm. not through the ordinary senses but in order to know that that information is correct some living person has to know the answer mm-hmm. so as long as there are living people involved in the mix no, oh, you're saying they could be getting, grabbing the information from the relative, not the, not the dead grandmother kind of thing. Right. 
And even if it's information that is later found out to be true, well, maybe it's precognition. Maybe Mm -hmm. it's clairvoyance. You see, Mm -hmm. as long as there are humans, living humans involved in this process, we know Mm -hmm. from remote viewing research that you can get information from a distance with no one there, Mm -hmm. even. Mm -hmm. Uh, From precognition, you can get information from the future. From telepathy, you get information from living people. So as long as we have those as other possible explanations, we don't have a clean way of separating mm-hmm. out living versus potentially mm-hmm. non-living mm-hmm. sources of information. And this mm-hmm. has been a problem ever since science began looking at these issues. It's not a resolved issue yet. So right. that's why I'm saying that we, we don't know yet. We don't know like mm-hmm. we, we can have high confidence that precognition exists because we can do experiments that exclude other possibilities. Mm-hmm. But at least in this one, having to do with persistence of personal consciousness, we don't know how to do that yet. What do you think about um, near-death experience type, uh, well, experience, uh, where, where people, you know, in the coma, you know, an Evan Alexander or someone like that? Uh, what are your thoughts on that? I think some of it is related to what happens when the body shuts down, mm-hmm. but not all of it. Mm-hmm. So when you look at uh, what are the states of awareness where psychic perception improve, there are states that all have to do with the reduction of non-ordinary awareness. Mm-hmm. So people have in dreams and under certain drugs and drumming mm-hmm. and dancing, anything that pulls you away from ordinary operating consciousness, uh, right. you get much, much better psychically. So when the brain is shutting down, that's like, that's perfect. You, right. Any any part of your, your consciousness that has access to other places and times would, right. would suddenly become extremely vivid. So right. I'm not too surprised that in, in near-death experiences that people report things that sound flagrantly psychic. Mm-hmm. But again, we don't know whether the experiences that people report literally are what happens when you are dead and not coming mm-hmm. back. Because mm-hmm. again, it's the same confound as you have with mediumship. That mm-hmm. you, there, we can't go to the question that we're all interested in because we don't know how to do that yet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you know, so you think about it, okay, if it's psychic phenomenon and it has to do with the, they're still there, you know, I, I, to me, I would find it interesting that so many people who have those sort of take near-death experience, for example, are using a substance like, you know, DMT, ayahuasca, whatever, um, and they come back with a, they sort of have these experiences, you know, how many people have had that experience of, oh, wow, I'm, I'm, you know, one with the source that created it all and my consciousness survives and my memory survives and, you know, it, it seems to be, uh, a lot of relatable theme that I, I you know, you, I pick up on when you hear these stories, there's a lot of that sort of thing. So it's almost like if it wasn't that way, why would that be the, 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 the perception that they have? Well, the same thing could be said for long-term meditators or for anybody mm-hmm. who has a mystical experience. The experiences right. that people talk about are more or less the same. They get a sense right. of unity and an awareness that's unlimited mm-hmm. and all that. So, the, the uh, underlying question is, uh, maybe this is simply relaxing into the background state, right? So the background is consciousness. It's awareness. That's all that there is back there. It's not yeah. necessarily personalized. It becomes personalized when you come out of that state and you try to express it. You know, yeah. you use words like, I was in this state. Well, not really. In that state, you're nowhere, and that's why in, in the practices like Zen Buddhism, for example, a lot of the the spin that's put on it is that there is no self. 
right. in those states, right. the self disappears. The self is right. an illusion. It's the ego of, of the brain and body that are creating this notion of a, of a separate self. But when you dissolve back into that background, there is no self. Well, so right. I'm I'm not saying this I know to be true. I'm saying this is what the traditions have said. And it yeah. also explains one of the both the challenges and the joys of doing science in this domain because you try to be clever and figure out, well, how how can we convince ourselves through some kind of an experiment to see what actually is happening? Right. So, right. you know, I know I know the literature on survival probably is as good as anybody does because I read it all and I know the people are doing the research and I'm not able at this point to jump into the idea that yes we all personally survive death and we'll go on to some other form of existence right? Uh, because I can see too many open explanations that we haven't mm-hmm. been able to close yet it's a little like in a right. physics experiment where you have loopholes right? right you can't right, right. tell exactly what it is because maybe it's this and maybe it's that the same thing is true within in the domain of survival research, and mm. it's very difficult and frustrating, and an interesting challenge too. Yeah. Well, you are an interesting character, Dean Raiden. This is such uh, a pleasure to connect and uh, get your perspective on all these fascinating subject matters. Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on and connect. It's been wonderful. Been my pleasure. I do have one last question for you, though. I like yep. to end with the same question. Uh, in 60 seconds or less, what is the meaning of life, according to Dean Radin? The meaning of life is to find something that you're very passionate about, and then to do that and make that your living, uh, as long as it doesn't involve hurting anybody else. Hmm. That's That's the meaning. I love it. I love it. Dean, thank you again, my friend. Keep on doing what you're doing. You're doing amazing work. And uh, I know many listeners will be uh, following along and uh, will be looking forward to uh, your next book. And in the meantime, there's always my current book, Supernormal. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Dean. Thank you. Well, everyone, that concludes this week's interview episode. If you have enjoyed this positive download from our hearts and minds to yours, please take a minute, give us a rating or review on iTunes. Since iTunes is the holy grail of all things podcasting, uh, your good reviews help us to reach more listeners. Also, we would be extremely appreciative if you would tell your friends and family about the show. Our sincere intent with the Positive Head podcast is to spread positivity to the world Because, well, because we're selfish, quite honestly. Uh, I say that jokingly, but really only halfway joking. I'm referring to the good kind of selfish based on the knowing that we all get what we give in this life. Because when we give, we're actually always giving to extensions of self since we're all really one in the same consciousness, just in different bodies. So if you want to be a good selfish along with us by helping to spread the positivity, By all means, please proceed to shout about the Positive Head podcast from your rooftop. (laughs) Otherwise, as you continue on your fabulous journey in this 3D reality, be sure to remember this. As long as you ain't dead, you're already positive ahead. Journey well, everyone, and thank you for being.